have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to open up to Acts chapter 13, and we'll take a look at it together. Acts chapter 13 says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manain, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew name, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And the proconsul believed. When he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. Father, we ask God truly, indeed, even as Fritz asked, that you would bless this time, anoint this time with your presence. Father, and give us eyes, give us ears. Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive the seed of your word this morning as we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. When we come to Acts chapter 13, we come to the primacy of missions. It's the beginning of the missionary church uh, there in Antioch. The center of church and the missionary journeys that we're going to see throughout the rest of the book of Acts has moved from Jerusalem to Antioch. And Antioch is going to become the, the front runner, if you will, for the rest of the book of Acts. And uh, about halfway through our reading this morning, we come uh, to the changing of Saul's name to Paul and the primacy of Paul. He's going to become the primary center figure as we go through the rest of the book of Acts. It had been Peter, now it's going to be Paul. As the church continues to move forward, she moves forward for very distinct reasons. And as we take a look, we, I think we're going to see seven reasons, seven ways, seven things that occur within the church that propel it into missions. The, the finding, the calling, and the sending out of the first missionary journey as we take a look. The first one I think we've got to back up a little bit for. In chapter 12, verse 24, look what it says. It says, the word of God grew 
and multiplied. And what that verse is talking about is what happens when the Word of God is taught. The Word of God. Now, that's not the concept that we just flippantly go around and figure out what we're going to do. But the idea that Paul's going to build on, and that idea is this, to not shun to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel. That means we will go from Genesis to Revelation. You hang out here long enough, you will get the whole word all the way through. We're not going to avoid books that people think are boring. That's just because they don't really know what's going on in those books. Hopefully, we can shed some light on those things. But we're going to work our way all the way through. Why? Because it's the word of God that multiplies the body. The growth that is being talked about is the growth within the body. The first step to their being able to send out missionaries was the concept that there needed to be growth within the body. If it's not happening in the body, it won't happen out there. If it's not happening in here, you're not going to suddenly jump on a plane, get dropped off in Africa and become prepared or be prepared and ready to do whatever you think God's called you to do. If it's not been put in practice here. So the word of God, receiving the word of God. The Bible tells us faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. As we receive the word, we grow. And the body is multiplied. And as the body is multiplied, there is a very natural thing that takes place. As the body grows, there is a need to send people out. To send people out. Listen, there's needs all around the world. I have been, I've had the unique pleasure to travel all over. I've been in the, the rainforest in Amazon. I've been in the Philippines. I've been in Russia at the cold of winter, the dead of winter. Um, because I think I drew the short straw that time. I'm not sure how that all worked out. But all these places that I've been, Switzerland and Israel and a number of places to go and do missions, not to go on a tour. To go and do things, to go and spread the gospel, to go and reach into the lives of people and touch them with the truth of the word of God. And the way that occurs is when the body grows. When the body grows, which it grows by the word, the natural thing is then for the body to send people out. That's the first thing we see. In verse 24, the body was growing and as a result there was a need to send people forth. The next thing we see is in the next verse, verse 25, and that's where training takes place. The training to go out. The training to go out into the mission field. Look what it says in verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. They returned. They went to Jerusalem to take some, an offering, some food stuff, some things that the people needed. If you remember in about verse, or chapter 11, Agabus, uh, a prophet, had a vision that there was going to be a famine. The famine came. Jerusalem was suffering, and they took an offering down to Jerusalem. It's interesting, a couple of things in verse 25. One, Barnabas' name and his name has continued to be, as we look at the beginning of the first missionary journey, primary it's the first name listed the leader of the missionary group both the time when they went to jerusalem and the first one is barnabas it's not saul barnabas is in the forefront barnabas is the guy the son of encouragement 
He's the one that we'll see in a moment gifted with the gift of prophecy. He's the one who had the ability to speak to large gatherings of people. Not Saul. We'll see that in a moment when we come through the scripture as we work our way through. So we see Barnabas there in the front, but the ministry that they're doing, what's that ministry? I wanted to emphasize, and I will probably always emphasize, that that ministry and what we'll see, and one of the things I love about Barnabas is it wasn't about title and it wasn't about position. Barnabas is named first here. At verse 13, Saul takes over. Paul takes over and now he becomes the man that people are, are following and Barnabas goes right along with them. Why? He's not hung up on a title. He's not hung up on an issue. It's not whose name's first on the billboard or who got first call or which band got to play first in the set. It was all about reaching people with the love of Jesus Christ. And they finished their ministry. In verse 25, that word for ministry is diakonos. It's the same word in Greek that we get the word deacon from. It simply means to serve. They weren't elders. They weren't titled missionaries. They didn't have any plaque to hang on their door. They didn't have a special thing to stick on their desk. They were two guys felt called by God, sent by the church to take an offering. And when they finished their service, that's our training, our training field for the world, for going anywhere else, for developing the work that God wants to develop in us is right where you are at right now. Your home church. Your home church is the place where you are to plug in and serve. That's what they were doing. They were serving. They were serving. They saw a need. There's a need. There's some, somebody needs to take this down to Jerusalem. And they came and they did it. What I love about our body is that somebody will be driving through the parking lot and they'll look and they'll say, my goodness, there are some weeds between the trees and the trees need pruned and some flowers need planted. And the next thing I know, they're pulling around in their car, stopping, pulling weeds, planting flowers, taking care of the ground. What is that? That is doing the work of being trained. That is seeing a need, filling the need, and working in service. They see something, they do it. Amen. Pretty simple. I used, to, I used to be blown away. Chuck Smith, uh, the first time I ever went to, I feel bad. I, I, maybe he still knows who I am. I don't know. But we're at, the first time I met Chuck was at a youth workers conference. And at the youth workers conference, I just finished the soda and I had a bunch of ice left. So I just tossed the ice out on the ground because ice melts. I didn't think it was a big deal. About 30 seconds later, I hear somebody with a dustpan behind me. I turn around and it's Chuck Smith picking up my ice. You want to be humbled? Have Chuck Smith pick up after you sometime. Why did Chuck Smith do that? Why, isn't he the Pope of Calvary Chapel? Well, some people would call him that. Why? Because he saw a need and he did it. He just picked it up. I learned something that day. Don't throw my eyes out on the sidewalk when I'm down there. Um, I also learned a pretty neat lesson. That somebody as what I would see as important as Chuck Smith was not too important to see an issue, see what's wrong, and do it. See trash on the floor? Pick it up. Pick it up. Even though at the core of your being, you want to turn around and say, where's Jason at? <laughs> Pick it up. If you see a need, be the fulfillment of that need. That was their training. That was their training. Listen, I want to tell you guys how I see all these things fit together. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 says that he, he has 
given those who are apostles, those who are prophets, those who are evangelists, those who are pastor teachers. Those are the offices in which every person within the body of Christ will serve. Everyone. Whether you're a Sunday school teacher or you're a preacher, you serve in one of those offices. Notice I said office. It's not a title. If you want to hang a title that says apostle so-and-so, you're about 2,000 years late to be able to do that. In order to have the title of apostle, you have to see the resurrected Christ. So that's going to be a problem for you. But the office of an apostle, what does apostle mean? To be sent out. What do we call that today? A missionary. So the office of apostle is there. So we all are going to fulfill something, one of those offices within the church. Apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors, teachers. I'm not going to argue pastor, teacher is the same or different. We could pick that up later. Then... You're going to utilize one of the gifts or talents God's given you. Those gifts or talents are found in Romans chapter 12. Those gifts. By the way, in Romans chapter 12, that's the only place in the Bible where the gift, the word gift actually appears in the section that deals with gifts. Romans chapter 12 are gifts or talents that God has blessed. Every single person with something, it may or may not be on that list. The concept is what Romans 12 tells us about. So every one of us has a talent and a place to use that talent in one of the offices within the body of Christ. And then we need the empowerment. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, Paul said, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning pneumaticos, spirituals. The word gifts is not there. It's talking about the empowerment of the Spirit to fulfill your service. The empowerment... Of the Holy Spirit is what 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are all about. The supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit to utilize the gifts or talents that God has gifted you in the office that God has called you to. That's how the body functions. Not just me, not just Fritz, not just Jason, everybody. Everybody in this church fits part of the body. And the training happens when the parts of the body are doing the things that the body's called to do. They see a need and they feel it. They see an issue and they become a part of a solution. They begin to work and flow and come together as a machine. And what happens when the body is functioning like that is the church grows. What happens when the church grows? Sends people out and their training is taking place very naturally as they serve alongside one another. You want to be a missionary or utilized within ministry. You can't sit back and wait to be ministered to. You have to present yourself a person willing to minister to others. That's how God does it. Next we see that there are observed leaders. So you see it in the first verse. Take a look. Chapter 13. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. I don't want to bore you too much with Greek, but let me give you this simple concept. The grammatical structure of that verse, verse number one, indicates that the first three in the list are the prophets and the last two are the teachers. The first three are the prophets, the last two are the teachers. Jackie, how can you possibly know that? Look, I will make everybody bored if I sit down and have to draw out the grammatical sequence of the Greek in that first verse. But if you want to talk about it, we can get together and I can show it to you. But that's where the concept comes from. So the prophets, in the Greek sense, we're talking about the word and what the word means. A prophet was someone who was equipped to speak to a large gathering of people. 
All throughout Greek literature, that's how the word for prophet was used. Someone who was gifted to speak, a gifted speaker. Someone that can engage large groups of people. And so as we look at that, as we consider that, the teacher was someone who would teach, very gifted, well, had a wealth of knowledge, and able to teach, whether small or large, but they would feel more comfortable oftentimes with smaller groups. The prophet was also a teacher, able to teach, able to go one-on-one, but he had a special gifting for being comfortable in large groups of people. That's the traditional, understood definition of the word. Now, I'm not talking about foretelling the future. That can be a part of it. Foretelling God's word, that certainly is a part of it. But that's how all those pieces uh, fit together. So he says, these are the guys. This is the leadership. This is the pastoral staff at Antioch. Who's the first name? Barnabas. Barnabas is in the forefront, a big part of what's going on at Antioch. He was a big part of the founding of that church. He's a big part of the, the church, what was happening at the church and what was going on at the church. So Barnabas has that, that place at the top of the list as a, as a prophet, someone who was able to speak. Now, oftentimes when we think about Barnabas, we think about him as that guy that falls behind and encourages. But at the beginning of the ministry, he was out in the front. That's what I love about Barnabas. He was out in the front, but you know, he didn't clamor for the front. He didn't clamor for, the, for the, his name on the signpost. What he wanted to see was people saved. And when it became obvious that Paul was the guy to get that job done, there's no bickering, there's no fighting, there's no, nothing. Barnabas just steps out the way, Paul steps in. Verse 13, chapter 13, you see it happen. So Barnabas, we see, one of the leadership, one of those who are an observed leader in the church. He's serving, that leads to leadership. He becomes a part of the leadership. How do you choose your leadership? It's not, a, it's not a, a, a vote based on who knows who. How is leadership chosen? You get out in the mud and the blood and your work and you turn around and you look and see who's next to you. And the guys who are next to you doing all that stuff, that's your leadership. That's the people who are going to go out and get the job done. And that's how it's put together. That's how... Things move forward, and that's what you see with Barnabas. He's not the first guy, though, or he's the first guy, but let's look at the next guy. Barnabas is first. Then we have Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger is Latin for black. Simeon, who was also called Niger. So most people, by their nickname, they would say that this guy was a black man. We'll find out when we get to heaven. It's possible that we have this all sideways. You know, nicknames don't always fit exactly with what, the, you know, what do we call the biggest guy on the football team? Tiny, thank you. So, so I don't know, we'll see. But here's what church tradition was about Simeon. Church tradition is that this is Simon the Cyrene. That this is the guy who carried the cross for Christ. The one who Acts is later on going to tell us about his two sons, Rufus and Alexander, who both became pillars within the church. So we know that Simon the Cyrene got saved, that his sons were a part of the church, the early church. Some people see this as being him. It doesn't have to be, but what it does tell us is that there's a guy probably from Cyrene, these next two guys both from Cyrene, who were believers in Cyrene, Jewish believers who came to Antioch and began to teach the truth of the word to the Hellenistic people there, to the Gentiles. They began to share. And Gentiles began to get saved. 
And they became a part of the leadership. We read about that taking place. The scripture lays out for us those concepts. In Acts 11, 20 and 21. Some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they came to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. That's the foundation of the church in Antioch. It happened because of these guys from Cyrene and Cyprus who came over and began teaching. Two of the guys that were probably a part of that is Simeon, who was called Niger, which means black. And the other man here we see, Lucius of Cyrene. Both were part of that motion who came and started the church. And as the church began to grow and develop, they served at the church. And as they served at the church, they became the leadership at the church. So we see the leadership here at the church. And that these men, who we're going to see sent out in a moment, are observed as leaders... Within the church, all three of those guys are the prophets. Those are the ones who had the ability to speak to crowds, to engage the people. Then we come to the next two. The last two, the first one is Menane. Scripture says he was raised with Herod the Tetrarch. This is the Herod who killed John the Baptist. Herod the Tetrarch. When it says he was raised with him, well, what it means is that he was fed from the same breast. That they shared the same nursemaid. That's a pretty close relationship. So I don't want you to get the idea that these two guys, they grew up on the same block. Now these guys are growing up in the same house. Menane, the scripture tells us a little bit about him. Josephus tells him he's the most well-educated man Josephus ever met. He was amazing the intelligence that he had. And he was intimate friends with the royal family of Judea. Kind of a prominent position. What's it tell us? That the word of God was even saving people in prominent positions. That were getting saved and becoming a part of the church. There he is in Antioch. In the leadership. He's the first one listed there as a teacher. Gifted as a teacher. Being able to teach. One of the most well educated guys Josephus said he ever knew. And the, and the last guy. What's his name? We've heard it before right? What's his name? That's Saul. Saul. What do we know about Saul? We know Saul was raised as a, as a child up, educated by the great Gamaliel, or Gamaliel, potato, potato, whatever makes you happy. He raised them, he taught them. In fact, Gamaliel would say, I can't even keep Paul, I can't get this guy in books. I give him a book, he mows through the book. I give him another book, he's mowing through the book. Hunger for knowledge, very well educated, very intelligent man. You don't think he's intelligent, you need to read his his. His uh, message from Mars Hill, that message of Mars Hill is an incredible message that he gives out. But the, the idea that he was, he was gifted, he was a gifted teacher, probably not as comfortable speaking in large groups. Maybe that's not exactly the view we had of Saul. Maybe that's not exactly the view we had of Barnabas. But you know, our view of him is immaterial. The important part is... Not only were they serving, not only were they a part of the body of Christ, not only were they teaching people God's word, but they were observed as leadership within the church. They were involved. They didn't just appear out of nowhere. They were there, a part of the church. They were involved with the church. Look what it says in verse 2. It brings us now to this next concept. It says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, The Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the word to which I have called them. And the next thing we see is the call of the Holy Spirit. 
I want you to notice, when did the call of the Holy Spirit happen? Did it happen while they were at home and a lazy boy watching ESPN? They had to catch up on SportsCenter and find out what was going on? Is that when the call from the Holy Spirit came? What did the phrase say? As they ministered. Where were they ministering? It says they ministered where? Unto the Lord. What that means is they were gathered together in, in public ministry. The call of the Holy Spirit happened while they were gathered together corporately. While they were serving corporately. While they were ministering corporately. That's when the call came. It didn't come in the middle of the night. It didn't come in the darkness of some other place or while everything was still and before anything was happened. The call happened while they were serving. There's another part that's interesting. Not only as they ministered to the Lord. What's the other phrase? The two words you're not going to like. And fasted. Oh, come on. You can't possibly mean that fasting is a concept that the New Testament church should be a part of. Well, let me tell you something. Fasting is going to appear in the next two verses, right next to each other, and in the next chapter. The word fast is going to come up all the way through the book of Acts. I don't know why people want to ignore it. It is definitely a part of New Testament church. Now, I didn't always feel that way. I feel that way now. It is definitely to be a part of the New Testament church. It's a discipline that I think in a lot of ways the church is disconnected from. When did the Holy Spirit call them? While they served, as they ministered corporately, and while they were fasting. While they were a part of a fast. Now when we talk about the fast, people, people trip all the time. They go, they'll talk about, well, Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, how come your guys don't fast? And Jesus said, when the bridegroom's here, they're not going to fast. But don't stop there. What's the rest of the scripture say? Jesus said, but when I leave, they will fast. The inference is that the church would be a church that does fast. So let's think about what the concept of the fast is for. What is it about? What is going on when the fast, when, when the scripture indicates these things are going on, when fasting is happening? Here's what we know it's not. New Testament fasting is not about trying to get miracles or trying to get breakthroughs from God. It's not about that. What is it about? It's about aligning yourself with God and what He already wants in your life. It's not about trying to get God to do something for you. It's about preparing yourself to be prepared to receive what God has already planned for your life. It's not about trying to get God to change something. It's so that we can be changed and enter into a time of greater faith. That's what fasting is supposed to be about. Look, you don't need anything from God. No, you don't understand. I really do. No, you don't. What are you talking about? 2 Peter 1.3 His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to this life and godliness. Careful study of the Greek indicates that all things means all things. So there's nothing he hasn't given us. He has given it. What do we need to learn to do? We need to learn to walk in what he has freely given. <coughs> How can we learn to walk in what he has freely given? Fasting helps us. What do you mean? Listen, fasting prepares you before a crisis takes place. It gets you into alignment with what God is doing and prepares your heart for those things that are coming. 
It's too late to fast after fasting is something we do to prepare ourselves for the storm that may come, for when the winds blow. And when we fast, what's the purpose? The purpose is to shut down the natural man and allow the spiritual man to rise up. Now, this, here's what people do. Listen, when I talk about fasting, let me tell you what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about designing something that you think is the only spiritual way to fast. You think, well, if you're going to fast and you get no food and just water, you can have one teaspoon of water every two or three days and that's it. If you want to do a real fast, that's how you fast. Let me tell you where your focus is. Your focus now is currently on the natural man and what you're denying him. Your focus is on what you're not taking, what you're not having, what you're not doing. What's your focus supposed to be? On the Lord. So what I fast from, I fast from something that I am going to be able to lay aside. I'm going to put it down. I'm going to set it down. I'm going to deny my natural man, whatever that thing is. And I'm not going to focus on it. I'm going to focus on the Lord. So when you, what people, most people do wrong when they try to fast, they try to do some crazy thing that makes them fail. You want to succeed? There's several fasts in the Bible. Jews fast are in the Bible. There's Daniel's fast in the Bible. There's all kind of different concepts about the fast. One of the things, thanks sis, one of the things I encourage you guys to check out is a book called The Awakening by Stovall Weems, which is a, a fast that I did. And it was incredible, an incredible time. I encourage you to check it out and look at it. But the idea is to deny the natural man something and to allow the spiritual man to rise up so that he can be empowered, so that the spirit can speak, so that God can move. Now, Jackie, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. Are you listening? What were they doing? As they ministered to the Lord and what? Fasted, what happened? The Holy Spirit spoke. Well, that's all right. You don't have to do that. I'm not trying to say that this is some kind of guideline. It's just the Bible. So if you don't want to follow it, don't. If you're sitting around and you're saying, you know, it's been a long time since I've heard the Holy Spirit speak to me and direct me. It's maybe a way in which you can engage. That's all I'm saying. Can you still be saved and never fast? Yes. Fasting has nothing to do with salvation. It has nothing to do with any of those things, but it was something that the church practiced and it prepared the soil for the Holy Spirit to speak and the men to hear and then move forward and do what God was asking them to do. You want to hear from the Lord? It's something that can be utilized, that can be a part of your life that will equip you because you are starving the thief of unbelief and you're feeding your faith. If you starve the thief of unbelief and you feed your faith, then what Jesus said would happen when he came down the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember the story, right? They couldn't heal this man's son. You remember the story? They come down the mountain and, they, and, and, and so Jesus said, How long am I going to be with you, wicked and perverse generation? And he looks over at that child and he casts the demon out of him. And afterwards the disciples came to him and they said, Lord, why couldn't we do it? You remember the answer? Because of your unbelief. And then Jesus said something. He said, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. And we think he's talking about the demon. He's talking about unbelief. Unbelief comes out through prayer and fasting. It's amazing how many times those phrases go together. They were called by the Holy Spirit while they served 
while they were fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul. Same name order again, right? The Holy Spirit called Barnabas too. And the Holy Spirit called him in front. You know, God calls people that can be in front who can handle letting the front go. Do you know that? If you can't handle it, he won't put you in front. But if you're in the front, that's because God says you're, you're not so tied to that title that you can't let it go. Move out of the way when God's doing something special. I think that was what really set him apart. Next we see in verse 3 that the church, we see the church is approving. It says, then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on him. Look, they didn't lay hands on him right away. Do you catch that? says but they they set aside a time to fasting and prayer now here's the interesting thing about this word to fast this word to fast is in the aorist tense it's talking about something short it wasn't some long 40-day fast probably it was a day they fasted and prayed for a day then they laid hands on them the body fasted and prayed for a day and then they laid hands on barnabas and saul what's the laying on of hands all about is to say, I'm identifying with you. You're part of me. I'm part of you. We're sending you out. We are recognizing the call of the Holy Spirit in your life. We see it in the way you served. We see it in your leadership. We see it in what you're doing. And we're just acknowledging that, yes, the Holy Spirit has called you and it's time for you to go. And so they approved of what was going on. They laid hands upon them. They put hands on them and they prayed. We still do the same things today. If we got a brother or sister who's Who's sick, what do we do? We bring them up, anoint them with oil, lay hands on them and pray. If you've been here, we've said, if you want to come up and lay hands, come up. <clears throat> when I come up and lay hands, what am I saying? I identify with you. You're part of my body, and I'm praying for you. We've also prayed for people that have been sent out. What's the whole purpose? So we can lay hands on them and, and acknowledge, yes. We acknowledge your gifts, yes. We acknowledge the call. You are called, you are gifted, you are sent. So the church approves. And in the church approving, we see that they're sent out. They're sent out by the church who simply is acknowledging what the Holy Spirit has already said. Look at the next section. It says, now having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on him and sent him away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. The word says they were sent by the Holy Spirit. In actuality, if you were there at the meeting, they were sent out by the church. Because the church was functioning in a healthy way, following the direction of the Holy Spirit, being connected in alignment and agreement with the Word of God. And so they were functioning in a way that was synonymous. The church moving with the Holy Spirit moving. And you can't always say that. You can't always say, because the church did it, it's the Holy Spirit. It's not the same thing. It's the same thing if that church is in submission to the Lord, that church is, being, is functioning under the guideline of the Holy Spirit, then it can be. Then it can be. That's how it is here. The body functioning together. Everybody coming together, being a part of what God is doing. Sent out by the church and sent out by the Holy Spirit. The last thing we see is they were obedient to the call. So being sent out, they went. Missionary organizations tell us today that of all the people who say they are called, less than 10% ever actually go. All the people who have ever felt called, less than 10% actually go. There are currently in the world today, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000 missionaries today. Globally. Do you ever check the population of the world? 
somewhere in the billions, right? Five, six billion, six and a half billion, fifty thousand missionaries sent around the world. Fifty thousand sent out. Big job. Less than ten percent go. You know why? Because answering the call of God is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you. You're going to have to leave home, maybe. You might even have to leave your kids. You might even have to leave your grandkids. You might even have to leave everything you've known. But it doesn't matter. If God has called you, you have to be obedient to the call. You have to go. I know a little bit about that. Kathy and I served at Joshua Springs for 15 years. That's not short time. I watched kids, I coached kids on football who had got married and were having children. I had deep connections. I, my kids were all there. My grown children were there. A lot of stuff going on. I did not ever have to leave that place. I could still be there, except I would be outside of God's will for my life because God called me. That was recognized by the body here when we came together back four years ago now. And we worked that stuff out. And when that call came, I had a choice to be obedient to the call or not be obedient to the call. Well, some would say, Jackie, if that was really the call of the Lord, then your house would sell. Baloney, where's that at? Show me the Bible where it says that. Show me in a Bible where it says, Jackie, if you're supposed to be there, you'll sell your house. The Lord said he'd take care of me. My house has not been without renters for four years. Now, we've had them changed, but I haven't been without. We've had humongous tragedies, near fires. I wish it would have burned down, but it didn't. All kind of crazy stuff happened. But it's still standing. We're still standing. God's still covering. We're still moving. It had nothing to do with my house sells or doesn't sell. I'm either called or I'm not. If I'm called, it's going to cost you something. The day my wife and I were going to tell my oldest son and his wife that we were going to Idaho, they sprung on us the last moment that they're pregnant. And they're going to have a baby. Oh, what? That changes everything. We're going to have grandbabies here? Forget it. We're staying. Somebody else is going to... My grandkids aren't going to know me. They're not going to see my face once or twice a year. Answering the call of God is going to cost you something. That's why less than 10% answer the call. My grandkids see me once or twice a year. But they know me. I'm the grumpy grandpa who comes from Idaho. (laughs) They don't really know me all that much. They know Kathy. She's Nana. She's like, oh, angels sing when Kathy was. I walked in one time without Kathy to their grandkids, and they looked at me and said, where's Nana? She didn't come this trip. Oh, we got you? Yeah, sorry guys. That's, that's how it's working out this time. Being called will cost you something. So the, the last thing we see is their obedience to the call. And what do we, here's how we see it. The first thing we see in their obedience is they left. It's hard to leave your home church. You stay, you plug in long enough, you're going to recognize it's hard to leave your home church. You have roots here, and you should. But when God calls, 
you got to be willing to go. 770 miles from Joshua Springs to Buell. I know it because I rode it on the Harley. At 500 miles, I was pretty sure I would never be able to feel my legs again. <laughs> but along that road, our, that road sprinkled with Kathy's tears. She cried from Yucca Valley till Buell. She didn't cry because we were coming. She didn't cry because she didn't want to come. She was crying over what she was leaving. But she was still coming. Because that's where we're supposed to be. We're not going anywhere. Because God hasn't said we're supposed to be someplace else. We go where he sends us. So they were obedient to the call. Next we see they're obedient to the call because they're proclaiming the word of God. What were they sent to do? Proclaim the word of God. Verse 5. And when they arrived at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John... As their assistant, John, you remember John. John had a surname. What was the surname? Do you guys remember? Mark. John Mark. Why is John Mark important? John Mark had a mom. His mom's name was Mary. And Mary had a buddy, uh, a friend of the family, who was a fisherman, big fisherman. His name was Peter. And Peter, one of his first converts after Christ's resurrection, was this little kid named John, whose surname was Mark. John, whose surname was Mark, would follow Peter around. Wherever Peter went, and as Peter was preaching, and as Peter was ministering, and as Peter was doing the things he was doing, there was little John Mark following behind him, taking notes. The notes of John Mark are what you read today in the gospel called Mark. That John Mark. It says here that he came along with them as their assistant. Doesn't that sound nice? Sounds like a nice title. Assistant, word for assistant means under rower. Well, even under rower is not too bad if you don't know what it means. The under rower was a dude in the bottom of the boat who while you were up on top having a pina colada, he was down in the bottom rowing the boat. He's down there rowing the boat because he is the assistant. Doesn't the assistant sound better now? Doesn't it? People clamoring, I want to be an assistant. Yeah, maybe not. That's who John Mark was. He was the under rower. He was serving. He just wanted to be a part of seeing people get saved. It wasn't about titles. It was about serving. So they're being obedient to their call when they proclaim the word. Next we see they're being obedient to the call when they confront the enemy. When they confront the, the opposition. Look at verse 6. Now when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. That means son of Jesus. Who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. So an intelligent man had this bonehead, Bar-Jesus, there as his wise man, his magi. The difference between the magis that came to find Jesus and this magi is the difference in their focus. The, con- the concept is a wise man. We often translate that as a sorcerer or magician. What it really means is he's like one of those guys who had a kiosk, like we have in the bookstore, if you'd like. And he had this kiosk, and he would fill it with this potion, and he'd pull up to town, and he'd pop up a sign and said, Have my wonder elixir, drink it, and everything's going to go away. That's the same concept, the magi. The magi, the, 
the sorcerer, the magician, the guy who's there to lead people astray. He's the guy who was the wise man or the counsel for the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Now, it used to be that people, wise men in the world, would look at the Gospel of Luke and say, the Gospel of Luke is lame because every wise man today knows that there was not the title of proconsul at that time. Rome was not set up that way anymore, and he would have went by a different title. I don't know why you people read the Bible. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard of. And we can see their errors everywhere. That's what the wise people used to say. And then they were digging around in the ground like they do in the Middle East, and they come up with this big stone. And when they turned the stone over, it said, Proconsul Paulus. And all the wise guys stopped talking. Because the Bible is telling the truth. That was the title that they went by. That was what was going on. The wise guys today are just as sometimes unwise as they were back then with Bar-Jesus. So Bar-Jesus is the wise guy for the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Now this man, Sergius Paulus, he called for Barnabas and Saul. See the word order again. And he sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, Elimus is Aramaic, it means magi or magus, uh, he withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So you got there, Barnabas, trying to reach out to this guy, talking, and you got over here, you got the, the, the Elimus, the sorcerer, the other guy, he's trying to argue with him and, and put these things down. And I, I think maybe in some ways there you got Saul watching it all. And something incredible happens. Something incredible happens. It, it says, then Saul, who is also called Paul, that'll be his name for the rest of the book. Then it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. All of a sudden, Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit. That, that, that phrasing there means that it came upon him at a moment that the Holy Spirit filled him to overflowing. We've seen the picture, right? The hose in the pitcher, water coming out of the pitcher, affecting the people around him. That's the Holy Spirit filling Paul at that moment. And Paul has just the right thing to say and do. Because he's being led by the Holy Spirit. How was he prepared to be led by the Holy Spirit? you got to go back several verses. What was happening several verses before? He was serving in the body. He was a part of what was going on. He was fasting. He was praying. This was the general mark of his life. These were the things that he practiced that prepared him for this day. We are lazy today and we think, I'm not going to do anything and I'm just going to count on the fact that even though I haven't prayed and even though I don't read my Bible and even though I don't go to church all that often, I'm just counting on when the storm comes that the Holy Spirit's going to give me what I need. Well, He may be trying to give you what you need, but you can't hear Him. Because the things that the Holy Spirit says are spiritually discerned. Have you heard that phrase before in the Bible? When it talks about the Bible, what does it say? The Scriptures... The natural man cannot understand the things of the scriptures, for they are what? Spiritually discerned. It requires a spiritual attitude. It means a spiritual man must rise up. And so those things got to be a part of our life. if We're going to hear what the Holy Spirit is doing. So, so he was ready. He was prepared. And so he, he says to him, it's very kind and uplifting words, don't you think? I'm sure it was not tense in any way when Paul started talking. Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, is how I often like to start my conversations with people. 
Right? That's right there, chapter 2, second sentence in how to win friends and influence people. No. But what's he doing? He's confronting the opposition by what the Holy Spirit had told him to do. He's doing He's being obedient. Hey, is there a place where you have to confront somebody? Yes. What's going on here? you got a guy who's, who's wanting to come to faith, and the word is being taught, and you got somebody else interrupting it. I'm never nice to the guy interrupting it. For what? Why? Am I nice to the guy I'm trying to share with who has different views than me? Sure, that's different, isn't it? That's not the same thing. This guy is trying to stop the word of God from going forward. I had it happen before. I was actually doing a, I was in youth group. I had a bunch of kids and I was doing an altar call. And kids were beginning to come up and right as kids were coming up, I had another kid come running in the back of the room Start screaming about what somebody had done to his car, some kind of chaos or, you know, which was just, I found out later somebody else put him up to do it to see if he would, who was, he was brave enough to do it. So he come in the back and he starts screaming and shouting. Now he's interrupting what I think the Holy Spirit's wanting to do. But I was not nice. I don't got to be nice. You think I should have been nice? Then you should have had the job. I, ch- I almost chased him all the way to his car. I chased him out of the building, down, I started to go down the thing out of the building, and I remembered I got all those people in there that were coming forward. So I stopped chasing them and said, ah, I know what you are, I know where you live, I know what you drive, and I will find you. And then I went back inside and continued to do what, what God wanted to do. Why? We're called to be sheepdogs. Do you know we're supposed to protect the sheep? To protect the lambs? And there's no place for that silly nonsense. Ever. So Paul begins with his phrase, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing for a time. And immediately dark mist fell on him and he went around looking for someone to lead him by the hand. What happened to Saul when he was persecuting the church? You remember, he's he's on the road to Damascus, bright light. He changes his ways, but what he, he was blind for a time, right? And we see him doing the same thing to another guy who was struggling, <clears throat> well, not really struggling, trying to persecute the church. God uses Paul to do the same thing to him. What was the whole purpose of it? He didn't blind him forever. He didn't ruin his life forever. While he may be due that kind of judgment, he didn't receive it. He was blind for a time, long enough for him to wander around and look for somebody's hand and get out of the way of what was going on in the life of Sergius Paulus so that Sergius Paulus could get saved. So we see their obedience to the call in the fact that they were willing to confront the opposition, to deal with the problems. And finally, how do we see their obedience to the call people got saved? Look what it says, verse 12, And the proconsul believed. When he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, I got to say, listen to, look at, the, look at the sentence again. It wasn't because of what was done. The miracle had nothing to do with it. <clears throat> the writer of Acts, Luke, is telling us, then the proconsul believed. When did he believe? Well, at the same time when the other guy was going blind. While the other guy's going blind looking for, for someone to lead him by the hand, the proconsul is asking Jesus Christ to be his Lord and Savior. It happened at the same time, not as a result of, 
but at the same time. And then you see this, the last part of the, of the sentence there. It tells us why. Because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished by the word of God. The word of God brings people to faith. It's the word of God. It's not the miracles. If that was true, then the children of Israel will walk with the Lord all their living days. You see the Red Sea part and walk across, trust me, you would. If miracles did it, that would have done it. But they wandered through the wilderness quite a while, not quite being able to grasp faith, didn't they? It's the word of God that brings faith. And the word of God that brought faith in his life. So as we look at the scriptures today, as we look at what God has for us, here's what we see, man. The word of God is moving, it's growing. As the body grows, as the church grows, it begins to reach out. Who's it sending out? The people who are serving. The people who are looking, are coming alongside. The people who are being raised up in leadership. Those are the ones who are being sent out. And when they go out, they're obedient to the call. And they preach the word. And they're not afraid to confront opposition. And they're not afraid to do the hard things and deal with all the stuff that needs to be dealt with. And as a result, people get saved. That's how missions works. That's how it's supposed to work. A couple of years ago, Andy, when did you get married? Did you say 80? 18. So 80 months, man. I don't know, I can't do that much addition, but that seems like a long time. <clears throat> 18 months ago, I met Andy doing their wedding. And as a result of their wedding, uh, myself and some other guys invited him to go to the men's retreat. He came to the men's retreat. While he was at the men's retreat, the Holy Spirit spoke to him, laid a call on his life, a desire to go back home where he's from. That's Scotland. I married him in a kilt, huh? Yeah, I shouldn't tell people that, probably. Anyways... You're okay with it. So, so the Lord put a call in his life, a desire in his life. I want to go back to Scotland. So he came over and we started talking about it. And I said, well, Andy, here's some things you can do to kind of prepare yourself. And, and I, he was like, he was like uh, Paul. Every time I give him a book, he'd finish the book, come back. I'm done with the book. Give me another book. I'd give him another book. We'd work our way through the books. Pretty soon we're working our way through Bible college. He's signed up to do some Bible college. He's, he's almost finished his Bible college. He's got a little bit longer to go and he'll be finished with his Bible college. And, and he's doing all this stuff for preparation. Now Andy's not just about reading books and doing stuff. You need to serve. And so now he's doing children's ministry. He's serving doing children's ministry. He's serving as a diaconos coming along saying, oh, somebody needs coffee. So he's making coffee and he's doing all this stuff and all these things. He's working and doing all these things. And out of nowhere... I get an email. Email from Motherwell, Scotland, saying, you know, if you got anybody that might be interested in serving in Scotland, we could really use somebody here. So, if you believe in coincidence, a coincidence occurred. If you believe as I do in Godowence, then God said, hey, things are happening. So I print it off and I hand it to him. And he's reading it and he's like, I can't believe it. And he's, I'm planning on going and do a book signing in London. I just happen to be right next door to Motherwell, Scotland. So I'll stop in and see him. So while he's in London doing his book signing, his book tour, he goes over and he, he visits with the, the, the guy there at Motherwell. And he talks with him. And the guy's like, man, it'd be awesome if you could come. Could you come tomorrow? Well, probably not quite tomorrow. But as soon as I can, I'll come. So he comes back here. And he begins to share with his wife about the things that God's doing and and. The call is evident, right? And you begin to see, that's not the only one in our body. 
David Bashor and his lovely bride in two weeks are going to be in Romania, right? Roughly? So two weeks from tomorrow, they'll be in Romania doing a short-term mission trip there for now, coming back, taking care of some other preparations so that they can go long-term. Andy, hopefully in October, is going to go to Scotland. And we're going to see one day him plant a church over there in Scotland that will be something that came out of a little church in the middle of Buell. Because that's how God works. That's what God does. So we're stoked about it. So pretty much I'm done preaching, but I wanted Andy to share just a couple of minutes on his heart for Scotland. And then we'll, then we'll pray and, uh, and cut you guys loose for a celebration of Mother's Day. But uh, let's, let's hear from Andy. Come on up, brother. So like Jackie said, I was in Scotland a couple of weeks ago. Actually, four weeks ago today, I was doing something I haven't done in 30 years, playing basketball for two hours. And that was with a church in London. But two days later, I drove up to Scotland. Now, I left Scotland in 1969. And I went back for the first time about four years ago. And, you know, before I left, my dad joked with me and said, you know, you're going to be hung over the whole time you were there. Because that's before I turned my life over to God. And I said, no, you're wrong. Well, guess what? He was right. This time it was different. This time I was fully committed to see what God needed me to see. And when I got to Motherwell, the scales fell off my eyes. And I saw what I needed to see. And what I needed to see was the fact that 96.4% of the population have never come into a church. 2% of the population go to church Christmas, Easter, weddings, and funerals. Jackie probably said earlier that right now there's about 50,000 missionaries in the world today. Well, in Scotland, that's about how many b believers there are. Now, people think of Scotland, they think, you know, well, they don't need missionaries. Everything's fine over there. It's not. Scotland started with a very strong Christian faith. The flag that flies over Scottish buildings right now is the flag of St. Andrew. And the reason it's St. Andrew is because Andrew has a strong connection to Scotland. After him came St. Patrick, and people are probably thinking, St. Patrick, he's Irish. No, he was an Irish missionary who was born in Scotland. And when you drive around today, you'll see Presbyterian churches. And that's from another Scotsman, John Knox. John Knox had a vision that Scotland would be seen by God as New Jerusalem. That he could spread the gospel throughout a country that at that point in time, and this was back in the 16th century, only knew pagan festivals, and the odd one might have known Catholicism. Well, he turned that country around, and within less than 100 years, 
Scotland became the first country in Europe to be literate, to be able to read the Bible. And we also have David Livingston, one of probably the best, most well-known missionaries because he went to the darkest reaches of Africa, but he too was from Scotland. John Knox had that vision of having Scotland as a chosen people. But if John Knox was here today, he'd be shaking his head. He'd have tears flowing at what's happened to his country. I feel strongly about these people because these are family. These are people that for centuries our families have worked together, bled together, died together. The blood that's in Scottish soils is all of ours mixed together. And that's why I'm so passionate about them. These people need to be saved. These people need to know what the love of God is all about. And they need it now. And they're not the only ones. We all do. But please help us get there so that we can bring the word to the people that have forgotten. Because if you don't continue being in the word, eventually you're going to turn away from it. And eventually you're going to lose your faith. And that's what's happened to Scotland. And that's what's happening here as well. And that's what they need. And that's what this country needs too. So I'm going to keep it short because I know it's Mother's Day and everybody's probably going out. And happy Mother's Day to, to all of you. Um, there is going to be a video probably next week where you can see some of the things that are going on in Scotland. And it is, it is truly heartbreaking. So thank you.